Well, yeah, it was um, yeah because we weren't sitting around focused on the ski set. I'm, I've definitely thought about that as performance has mattered more. Like for a pro event, it's going to matter if you're going to get paid that day or not. Right. Or, you know, you're, you're going to be webcast. And if you really dork it up out there, you feel like, oh, man, everyone's watching. And this is I'm not representing my brands very well when I have a bad day or something like that. And so even in practice, like building up to an event, it, it's more mentally intense. You're like, I, I got to get my game together. Whereas I can remember being a, a kid and I wanted to, every time you get out there on the course and you have a measured outcome, you basically want to do your best. But I remember having days where it just didn't go that way and like did not follow me off the water. Like as I was drip drying, all of those, like any, any disappointment that it didn't really go great, it dripped right off. And like I was just on to the next thing, whatever, if we were <laughs> might be playing in the sand or going to like jump off my friend's diving board or whatever. Yeah. It, it if I had another set later that night, it didn't follow me that, oh, man, I had a bad set this morning. I really hope I'm not getting into a slump. Like, I didn't get overly heady. And I've, I've wanted to recapture that and bottle it somehow now, you know, where you just let it roll off. You're going to have days that don't feel as good. That's, that's natural. Every day can't be this linear progression forward. Welcome back to the Waterski Podcast, or welcome to the Waterski Podcast. This is Matteo Luzzeri, and what you're about to listen is the first of a two-part interview with Corey Vaughn. Uh, Corey is a great friend of mine. Uh, we've been knowing each other for a few years now, and he's one of the best skiers in the world, hands down. Um, one of the only ones that has run 41 off, or 1025, uh, a constant threat at any pro event worldwide and especially a fantastic human being uh very complete very uh, i don't know that spiritual is the right word because maybe it's overthrown uh, and abused these days but he's certainly someone who's very connected with his intentions and with the people around him uh, i think that anyone who skis against Corey, skis at his ski school or just hangs out for a meal or a beer will be able to testify to this. It was a very thorough interview, and I'm so glad we got to do this. Basically, this first part uh, is just history, history of how he managed to get, not even to the level that he's now, but we stopped at a very important milestone, and we'll continue from that for part two. Obviously, the times are hard worldwide, so I hope everyone is safe and is being precautious. And uh, again, as I said last week, I hope that this podcast can provide you with at least a bit of entertainment and a distraction. If you want to get in touch, you can follow me on Instagram at Luzgram, L-U-Z-Z-G-R-A-M, or you can write me an email at Matteo at thewaterskipodcast.com. Until then, enjoy this part one and stay tuned for part two next week. Enjoy. Should we start? I'm ready. Okay, Corey, dude, welcome to the Water Ski Podcast, hey, man. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matteo. I'm excited. I've been uh, an excited listener and feel honored to uh, sit across from you. Well, here. likewise, likewise. This is this is exciting. Uh, we're here at boarding school. This is my that I have released. This was my fourth or fifth interview here. This place is magic, man. A lot of people come through here. I mean, I find it just kind of amazing. Uh, a lot of places in Orlando, you never know uh, who might just pop out on the dock. I, I'm not used to that. I didn't grow up around that type of thing. So just being at a random ski school, like, oh, look, there's Chris Parrish. Like, okay, one of the best skiers ever just showed up nonchalant. Nobody really ruffles a feather. Um, and that definitely happens a lot here at yeah, the morning school. I mean, we had a birthday party for Freddie Winter last night and definitely just a lot of pro skiers walking around just having a chat right yeah like a lot of tricks there was a lot of trick points in that room too and there's some <laughs> slaloms yeah it was good it was a good night um what um I guess like you said like you never experienced anything like this mm -hmm. and I'd be really curious to hear 
your first experiences? Like, how did you get into the sport? Mm-hmm. How did you, you know, ended up into water skiing? Um, well, so for me, like I, probably most people who are water skiers, it was just a family thing. Right. Um, my grandparents got, uh, they had a lake house in North Carolina, and I would spend the summers with them. Once the school year was out, we'd go down there together. Um, before I was born, they had bought a 1981 Mastercraft, red and white stars and stripes. That was the Legendary. family boat, which uh, we, we still have. It's a hurt pup right now. I want to restore it, though. It's, oh, okay. It's going to be a long-term venture, though. Um, but um, basically, my grandfather learned how to ski when he was in the Air Force. He was at Eglin Air Force Base you know, near Destin. Um, and learned with his neighboring colonel how to get out there and just ride around on two skis and I think eventually one ski. I think they built themselves a ramp, you know, just like your classic 40-horsepower outboard story, just like out out there loving it. And then when he moved back to the Washington, D.C. area, he had cultivated this new passion for water skiing, wanted to find some way to do it in the summer times, so started renting various, like, lake houses, uh, this would have been like the late 60s, so it wasn't, it wasn't like it was a big thing. But anyway, you know, he and my grandma had four kids, including my mom. And uh, as they were doing these little family week vacations and renting boats, renting cottages, um, they all learned how to ski. And then um, I was the first grandchild that came into the mix out of there's 10 of us now. Um, wow. But I just kind of... I was in this great situation where my mom and I were also living with my grandparents, so I was naturally just spending the summer with them. And so I was I was three years old the first time they stuck me on some little trainers. There um, you go. Huh. And just and they just pulled me off the beach. You know, I don't I don't remember the circumstances clearly. You know, I've seen pictures of it, so I kind of have some imagery. But I think I was too young to really remember. But um, my guess would be they probably used some reverse psychology on me and okay. and told me like I, I think I probably said like oh I want to I want to do this I want to do this like everyone else seemed to be having a lot of fun it was none of this like hey ski for mommy ski for granddad you look know. at mommy smile right it wasn't that I think I kind of asked that's what I've been told anyway I asked to do it and then they probably hit me with the like oh you're probably a little bit too little you know you're not you're not big and strong enough and then of course that's the first thing that made me think. I'll show you exactly who's big and strong or whatever. I mean, I, I think I just genuinely wanted to do it. And then, you know, uh, I, I do have memories of being towed off the beach because that was that one kind of like um, somewhat scary moment right. where like the boat starts, it gets loud. You, you know, you kind of go from standing on solid ground to being on top of the water. And um, so there was, that was a bit of a rush. You know, you get that yep. rush feeling. And then being a kid, I, I do have rem- memories of being out over top of the, the deep water and not knowing what's lurking many feet below me. And, right. And just being like, oh, my gosh, maybe something was going to eat me. But, um, you know, overall, you just get over it. Incentive not to fall. And um, so from there, yeah, like just the family loved it. We started doing it, you know, more and more. Eventually, I think it was my uncle like went to a ski school, discovered the slalom course. There you go. Decided that we had to buy an Insta slalom. Um, okay. Which we, yeah. Then I, I have a lot of memories. Being, I was the buoy boy. I sat with the big sack of of balls, in the passenger seat of the boat while everyone else was fumbling with PVC pipes and the rope and everything on the back. Uh, we'd put it in like on a Sunday night or Monday morning, and then take it out on a Friday, because the weekends would it would get chewed up too bad. But a lot of um family arguments coming out of like putting the course together keeping the boat straight not running over the rope it was i I was just like content to sit in the corner with the buoys and like okay red one throw it (laughs) yellow one throw it right i stayed out of the uh the fray when i was little but yeah we we put that course in and took it out every week every summer for oh man probably 15 years before we got a submersible Oh wow! You know where with the air compressor it could go yeah. up and down, and so um, yeah, that it was it was just public water life. You know, we we and we did everything. It wasn't just slalom. You know, like that was my favorite. We'd get up in the morning, ski, flat water, flat water. Try to hit an evening set before or after dinner or something. But I mean, you know, I got just as much 
fun out of like kind of finding my neighborhood friends to come over and getting out on the tube we're all going like triple kneeboarding together right or you know we'd fill up buckets of water and try to wait down the the old 81 mastercraft to get a little bit of a wakeboard <laughs> right. wake you know and it was like a curb basically just cut out this curb and and pop but um you know it definitely had that holistic life lake life experience it was you know even when we discovered water ski tournaments and even when we pretty much instantly loved them and the community that we found there um it didn't really change our whole thing it wasn't like oh uh you need to scrap all of this wakeboarding and kneeboarding nonsense and get serious about yeah, yeah. the slalom course it was like that didn't happen that didn't happen honestly for me until i i made that decision as a post college person we're skipping way ahead now but i didn't like get serious about skiing until much later basically until it was like well maybe either do this or have a real job and right that that really made the decision more clear and i think that's that's kind of like one of the things that drawing to interview you is that i i don't know your story i know bits of it and i know it's very unusual because what you said is you know like when we discovered tournaments we didn't get super serious off the get-go which is actually what you now see in a lot of skiers and you have a ski school yeah we can talk about that but like a lot of parents and young skiers get serious before they even go to a tournament. It just becomes this plan, you know, like we're getting ready for the tournament. We're going to be tournament water skiers without experiencing what I would say most of these, the listeners and most of water skiers are. You know, like there's a boat, there's water. Just enjoy your time towed onto something, you know. Yeah, I definitely do see it a lot with the ski school, and I'm, I'm sure you yep. are the same. Um and it's a different culture. I feel like, I guess, since the time that you and I were both kids, uh, the predominant skiers in competitive tournaments at whatever level are mainly members of a club, yep. you know, like a, a private lake club. And that wasn't always true. I think before there was a little bit more blending and crossing over where you did have your club skiers. But even a lot of the people who were members of a club they may have gone there on the weekends or on their days off, but still maintained a course or some skiing at another body of water. And and I'd say the culture of tournaments was more uh, inclusive in the sense that there was a wider spectrum of abilities that was yeah. showing up. And so it was assumed like, oh, if I'm just somebody running 28 off at 15 miles an hour, uh, there's still a place for me at this tournament. Like, I had still a reason to go, you know. Like, my grandfather, for example, I think that was his best run ever, was 15 off, 28 miles an hour. And he still loved, like, going to the tournaments just to, you know, experience that pressure and do it, you know, see how you, well you could do that day in a one-and-done format. Um, whereas I see, like, now, certainly um, a lot more people have, they're really only skiing in the club, um, and it kind of informs a different mentality to your practice and to the competition. It's, it's much more now about like personal bests, ideal conditions. Yeah. Um, and ev even what we call tournaments, um, I heard somebody else use this and so I'm stealing it. I don't remember who, but really a lot of what we, what we call tournaments are really just rating events. It's not you know, a bunch of people skiing against each other that day to determine who's the best one that day, yeah. you know, whether it's against age category or um, ability-based or whatever. Really, everyone's skiing against themselves, uh, against the ranking list, against people everywhere, which there's something good about. Yeah. Um, I think that that's, that's nice for what it's worth, but we seem to be so focused on only that that really the only satisfying outcome for one of our events is basically a, a personal best or something that moves your name up the list. So then the event is tailored toward only ideal conditions, has to be the best water, the best driver. And if you feel like you only get to practice on not those conditions, then maybe there's not really a place for you at that table. And so um, I think that's one reason that over the last you know decade or 15 years we kind of constricted as a sport because we were really only it was just too exclusive yeah yeah, you know, yeah. we put a little bit of a stranglehold on ourselves now the people who were in were in big time like oh, hardcore yeah. you know love it 
want to live it, talk about it, everything water skiing all the time. But um, part of my journey for sure with having a ski school and just one, trying to make that a successful business and right. trying to make that what I'm, I'm doing for my career, a big part of that is reaching outside of that smaller circle. And I'm finding out um, maybe there's an overall trend where more and more people are just coming back to skiing as opposed to wakeboarding or different, you know, surfing or water sport. I mean, surfing certainly the biggest, and people are doing all kinds of stuff out there. Uh, but I have found it easier and easier over the last couple of years to connect with people that are wanting to ski, and then, um, you know, you shoot, you show some buoys to them, and the next thing you know, yeah, they turn one or two, and they're just hooked. Uh, completely um and so that's that's been a real joy on on the coaching side to see you know it reconnects me with that experience in my life where you know i don't maybe remember my first couple of times turning buoys but i know the after effect i know what happened since then yeah you know uh, i do know that i've been fully hooked for whatever it's been now 30 years um and i would say that like turning a buoy it doesn't matter what it is like i'm thinking when you finally got to put that course down with your family, you know, despite the arguments and you were just throwing balls in, but then you actually eventually turn some balls and that, that emotion is the same, it's universal, you know, like you get to turn some buoys, you're hooked. Oh, totally. You know? And it didn't matter, like for us, even years to go, even when we were trying to show up and compete at tournaments, we'd go home and we'd be practicing the course, would have a big banana shape to it, right, and right. the wind's blowing it this way and that way. Sometimes we'd get it in pretty tight, other times kind of loose. Like we just Doesn't didn't obs- like we didn't obsess, and I, and so I guess that kind of gets back to like the mentality difference. Like if you're in a a club setting, it's great that you can invest as a club in getting everything right, and then when you host a tournament. Everyone has very fair conditions. It's equal, and it's equal to other places across the country or around the world. Um, but there's something lost in the, uh, you know, we can get very obsessive to the point where we're worried about which propeller is on the boat, yeah, yeah. you know, which which version of zero off do you have from which year, and, you know, what letter, oh, my gosh, I think I'm going to do B2 plus today because, we you know, this boat has a 5.7 engine, and... All that stuff, it's, it's a lot of mental noise. I mean, you probably can speak to this better than anyone. I, I feel like for me, anyway, a lot of it becomes mental noise where if I was really just more focused on my own skiing that day, my own preparation, my own right. feeling of my body on the water, of the ski on the water, um, I'm probably going to ski better than worrying about the 100 other circumstances that are basically beyond my control. Yeah, exactly. And I think... That's that's a lot of it in, in this sport, you know, like I spoke about it with Nick a lot, like, you know, he said it's an individual sport equipment based, but that all of a sudden opens so many variables that to a certain degree they matter, you know, like, but some of them you can control, some of them you can't, and what the ability to narrow it down to what you decide to focus on is the mental challenge of, I would say, this sport or other individual sports. Like golf is the same, right? Like there's so many variables, outdoor, equipment-based, technique-based, you know, but the ability to just key it down on one or two things that obviously matter and then you can put your attention onto, it's it's the mental challenge, you know? Well, our sport happens so rapidly. Um, when you're in the course and you're making all these split-second decisions, like that mental clarity and mental focus piece, I feel like comes right to the forefront where if you've been spending the half hour or day before you're set worrying about what all these particulars are going to be by the time you're actually skiing you're far away from that that with the flow point as as our friend marcus would call it yeah um that's that's exactly the name that's um, the name right and um and i guess my default setting is to minimize the importance of the equipment and those factors because again kind of not being a family that was in a club or, or in like this very hardcore, you know, oh, you need to, you know, get this ski or this stuff. Like I always had kind of hand-me-down, like very second-rate equipment growing up. Like we're going to get you a ski that's a little bit too big for you so you can grow into it for three years. Classic, Like yeah. life jacket's going to be a little bit too big so you can have it for a few years, which, I mean, look, it was fine. Like I, it just didn't even register to me that like, you know, 
I didn't have yeah eventually it did actually eventually I was just like oh my gosh please I want a new ski for Christmas or like please send me to a ski school like I know you know by the time I was thumbing pages in the water ski magazine for myself I started realizing like okay there's more to this than what we are figuring out on our own and what some of the really nice club skiers you know are trying to give us pointers like yeah you need to get your hips up you you know you should try to pull through both wakes you know like how many times has everybody heard that one um but you know I, i was always dying to get some better equipment or go to a ski school once i was fully hooked but like it was minimized to me from from my mom and my grandparents is like look this is just one sport that you do of many so don't you know oh, like, so you were playing out of sports at the time oh yeah i was playing a lot of, i mean water skiing was literally um my grandparents were so kind to like like wait to go down to the lake for my last day of school like literally i do have memories of we'd be packed they would have all the stuff loaded into the car they'd pick me up at school on the very last day and we would leave from the school parking lot drive four hours to the lake house and then i would not come home uh for you know until like two or three days we do the back to school shopping down there when there's like one more weekend to go before class starts on monday in the right. fall i would come home so i mean it's four hours i guess i i could have straddled that life and come back home more and seen my school friends or been involved with you know something at home in the summer but i might as well have been in a different country i think like all my summers growing up in the at the lake like I, it was just a different life i had a different yeah. circle of friends and what I find interesting I've been reflecting on in the last year or two is that um, I guess a lot of people our age, like 30s, are kind of realizing like, and it's different for different people, but I have kept up with only a small handful of friends that I made in college, um, loosely only with anyone from high school. I don't really keep in strong contact with anybody from high school other than like social media type of, of way. Um, and even then not in a very direct way and almost nobody from my, you know, pre high school, like uh, elementary school coming up. Um, but man, my water ski friends from those summers that goes back all the way to, uh, the, you know, the mid nineties, like I'm still in, in touch with some of those. We're still, you know, the dearest of friends. Right. And, um, so I think I was kind of uh, I was kind of realized that like that the summertime was just the time of the year, you know, like you kind of get through the rest. But anyway, yeah, skiing was a June, say June 10th to August, end of August type of thing. And then it was back to school, back to the other sports. And I mean, literally did not touch a ski until the following June. Right. That was just the way it was. Yeah, I think I think what you your reflection there speaks at length about something that I've noticed with a lot of guests too and in, in my just in my life like the passion is so contagious that I don't want to say you're meeting another addict but almost like you know like if you if you go to Publix this afternoon and you find someone and you know they have a ski shirt and they're oh a skier and you just talk to this person there's that immediate kind of like trust understanding you know like that's probably unhealthy or almost you know like maybe this guy is a bad person but but he's a skier you know but you tend i think we extend that trust pretty readily because all in all you don't find a whole lot of bad apples in the ski world i mean of course like anything there are some but um you know as both of us being in it for decades now and being like really in it all the time now um i guess you know you get some people that with it being an individual sport, maybe get a little bit too caught up in their own pursuit Dang, and it yep. becomes only about that and not about anybody else or anything else. Or, um, I don't know, some some people are just a, a little more abrasive, harder yeah. to be around, and that's going to happen in any sport. But by and large, um, it's such a cooperative sport in nature. Like here, here we are at the boarding school again, for example, and there's going to be a good handful of pro skiers skiing today, but there's also going to be a good handful of skiers that are even just attempting the course or trying to work on 3015 or whatever. And like no one has to feel uncomfortable or like they're going to be judged. And like there's just going to be a supportive nature all the way around. Like I'll, I'll say it for my part, we all get heady about how we're, how we're looking, how we're feeling, what our equipment's doing. Um, but like when, 
when somebody who's at ski school like tosses me a random compliment like oh we were watching you that that looked awesome like right. i don't care what it is like oh your spray was really big or like right. you know you, you look so graceful or what it looked so hard actually like it looked impressive because you were like battling with the boat crapping yeah you know it's even for for me after a lot of years or whatever like those compliments are really nice you know and i feel like that goes the other way too where uh, pro skiers just hanging on the dock I think we're mostly mindful to be like, hey, or at least ask if you didn't see how was your run. Ask some questions about it, like, oh, what are you working on? And that overall camaraderie, I feel like that's harder to have in a sport like tennis. Like, how does everyone share the same court in tennis? Right. You know, like if you're Roger Federer, you're not going to find yourself kind of out there hitting balls at the same public park as me. Right. You know, or like if Amelia guy can go play tennis, we're not going to bump into you know Nadal yeah. and yeah, you're exactly. like oh how, how's your stroke feeling today like, <laughs> you getting your serves in you getting your first serves in today um but here it happens i guess especially in florida it happens quite a lot or yeah. even in in the the club scenario you got your really high level club skiers run 35 off or whatever and for the most part those people want to hop in and drive and coach and help out somebody yep. that's new to the club or new to the sport and uh, I think that's what keeps a lot of us in, right, is the community. It's the community, and it's the fact that we are sharing this passion, that it's a little bit odd, like you have to do some things that I would say other athlete-minded people, for the most part, wouldn't understand. Like, you know, I'm thinking about your buddies. That's cool. Like, uh, fuck, Corey's gone for three months. We haven't seen him, and he's just, you know, chasing buoys behind the boat every day. That's a bit, you know, like, but again, then you get the bug, and people have that sort of understanding Oh yeah, I know. I know how you feel. Like I've fallen at two ball, you know, like that that sort of stuff. Yes, yeah, that relatability, and I think that's right. You know, like honestly, my school friends, I don't think they had really any idea. Like I talked to them about it when we'd pick up with whatever fall sports and whatever's going on. Like yeah, I was like water skiing all summer, but they didn't understand the like the course and what what we're really like doing. Be hooked about it, you know. Right, right. Um, uh, but then on the flip side of that, like all of my ski friends who respectively went back to their schools and their other circle of friends like we all had such an immediate understanding once we came back together as a group and and saw each other for the first time like ah oh, we survived another school year thank goodness now we're back to this like we all understand we just we want to be here we want to you know run run around this tournament site together and ride bikes or right. you know play truth or dare whatever it is at, at the given age um yeah, that set, that immediate sense of understanding is it was always there in that crowd in a way that uh, was not the same going back to school. And in, in school, you know, it's you're it, you're not like you're doing something that you particularly love all of the time. So yeah. there's days where you're just there, you don't feel at your best, you know, you're just kind of trying to get through it. Whereas like pretty much when you're around your water ski friends, like you're doing something that you love. So like you're up, you're in a good mood, you know hopefully if you're already doing tournaments and stuff like that as a kid like you know you're kind of good at it it's not like you're being in pe class forced to play kickball which you're not right particularly talented with and then like everyone's like oh boy you know they're gonna watch me try to kick this ball again which i stink at i'm gonna get thrown out at first base uh, again i always like i'm bad at these things in pe class whereas at skiing it's like everybody knows if you had a bad day and you fell at two ball yeah they've been there and yeah, exactly. so they can commiserate with you they don't think you suck even though at the time you think you suck and your life is over for the next like hour or two right um everybody understands and then uh, that same supportive way like you know everybody wants to see everybody else do well for the most part yeah yeah that's true and i think a lot of it is also like our sport is a little particular in the way that like you can only do it for 15 20 minutes mm. and then you need a bit of a break and then you can go again and what happens in those breaks i think is also key right so if you have friends around if you have you know like uh, i don't know like a stand-up paddleboard uh, like some foosball like something to do you know like a diving board anything that you can do in the middle that creates community right, right? and i think that's something that going back to how sometimes king is being structured right now it might be something that you're missing you know like you're doing your set and then you're sitting around and then you're doing another set and then you're sitting around and that's it and it doesn't really create that like 
that you might be pushed to go to the lake because you're you're very driven and you want to improve but the lake itself loses the value you know yes and it sounds like you had a completely different experience well yeah it was um yeah because we weren't sitting around focused on the ski set I'm, i've definitely thought about that as performance has mattered more like for a pro event it's going to matter if you're going to get paid that day or not right. or you know you're, you're going to be webcast and if you really dork it up out there you feel like oh man everyone's watching and this is i'm not representing my brands very well when i have a bad day or something like that and so even in practice like building up to an event it it's more mentally intense you're like i, I gotta get my game together whereas i can remember being a, a kid and I wanted to every time you get out there on the course and you have a measured outcome you basically want to do your best but I remember having days where it just didn't go that way and like did not follow me off the water like as I was yeah. drip drying all of those like any any disappointment that it didn't really go great it dripped right off and like I was just on to the next thing whatever if we were <laughs> might be playing in the sand or going to like jump off my friend's diving board or whatever yeah it, it if I had another set later that night it didn't follow me that oh Man, I had a bad set this morning. I really hope I'm not getting into a slump. Like, I didn't get overly heady. And I've, I've wanted to recapture that and bottle it somehow now, you know, where you just let it roll off. You're going to have days that don't feel as good. That's that's natural. It, every day can't be this linear progression forward. Even at your level, yeah. Well, especially at the higher yeah. levels. You're, you're going to... I read this book. I think it was called... Um, Mastery? Art of... Yeah, I think it was called Mastery. And it talked about embracing the plateau and i thought that was a good phrase like at some point you have to love your craft and what you're doing even with the realization that like today may be just a sidestep i may have to just go sideways for a little while before i really yeah feel like i'm getting a step forward yeah um, which in at our i mean at our level they're few and far between you cross them almost it feels by accident but it's not really accident is the hours and hours of work you put into it and for as much as you don't want to think about all those variables you know those variables have all been sort of taken care of at different times and then bah you have this like minor like you have this major um improvement but in the math like in the buoy count it's a super minor thing it's just i don't know maybe for you it may be like a nice feeling going to 4 at 41. You still didn't get 4, but like yeah. now you have like this new You window. know that was it though. You know you were on to something. Yeah, exactly. When I think, you know, I that's what I'm trying to draw a lot of inspiration from now, kind of looking out uh, into the future and, and, and what's to come. Um, what I think is so great about our sport that I, we all maybe realize on a subconscious level, but it doesn't always kind of rise to the, the conscious level, is that... Um, each time we go out there, if we're skiing the course, we kind of have this um, opportunity to to push our potential. Like we're going to get an outcome. We're going to get a number, like a, yeah. a, a score at the end of it. Even in practice, we kind of get that every time. Um, and so I think going into it, there's kind of a de facto desire to you know, be, be the best version of yourself that day. Like that's kind of what keeps us coming back to the dock, back onto the ski is like, Hey, maybe I can be just a little bit better than I was yesterday. Um, or even if like overall I'm, I'm not skiing my best right now, or it's, I'm just starting the season, you know, it's that promise of, of potential that yeah. we kind of get trying to get on that ramp and climb it and see how far we can climb up. And even, um, you know, I've been drawing inspiration from, skiers who you know I, I think of say like chris lapointe who has been world champion numerous times world record holder um you know was the top person in the sport at a time and is you know is now skiing in men's six he's clearly not as good now as when he was setting the world record you know yeah. that that would be unreasonable to expect but he's still every day showing up at the lake thinking what can I do today that will give me an edge over yesterday? Whether it's with the, he, he's very much about the equipment because he knows yeah. so much about skis and fins and design, you know, he, but he's still challenging his mind to find what's that next edge. And of course, it, skiing always gives us an incentive to stay in shape. Like yep. physically, the better your body is, the stronger you are, the, the higher your overall fitness, the better. So I just, I love kind of, this constant pull and I feel like it's a little bit of um, 
a metaphor for life. I feel like that's one of the reasons we get hooked on it too is in skiing, we kind of can do a 15 minute set and we poof, we get an outcome and we see how well we did compared to yesterday. And hopefully we reflect on that and try to take a learning lesson that we can apply toward the next set or tomorrow right. or, or whenever. Um, but that's the same thing that we really are trying to do with our lives, presumably, if we're engaged in the business of trying to author a, a good, authentic life for ourselves. We're having experiences all the time, trying to learn from those and, and be a better version of ourselves tomorrow, even though we're in constant change. You know, like uh, there's things that in my life now that I'll, I'll probably never be as good at as I once was, but I like to think that there are also a lot of things awaiting me in future times that I, I've never even tried potentially to better at. that I can, or that I'm very weak at right now that are under underdeveloped. And even if I'd ever become very proficient or very good at them just to, to strengthen those things and to take on, take on new abilities and, and new challenges. I think skiing is just such a direct result every time that it, it fuels that part of us. That's always inching towards a better version of ourselves and yep. at least for me kind of having had that come to like the conscious level it has served as a good motivator for if i'm feeling a little disconnected from my my skiing at the time or it's going not so well it's like okay that happens in other things in life too you have to go through phases like it, every day is not the day is every day is not your birthday every day is not christmas every day is not rainbows and right. and sunshine and like the best day ever and it, that's what makes those days special and like that's what when personal bests are very few and far between all of that struggling and going up and down and having really good days but not so good days it, you know it's all in pursuit of uh like you said even if it's not the personal best score outcome it may just be a new feeling where you have that aha moment you go okay that i've been trying to get that feeling for a long time and there it is and i think i like i know what i did and i'll be darned tomorrow when i go out there i think i can recreate that right um so yeah the pursuit is not linear at all you know like it's it's up and downs but then you you sort of take the averages of, of those peak and valleys and if the slope is kind of like uprising just even a little bit that's when you know you're doing something right right because at first when you start like you know we always have that joke in ski schools of how people don't get their pb on the set and they're upset because right. every day has been a pb or like right. well you know that's that's the early days and then you get to a moment which who knows where that is where like improvements are few and far between so really the goal becomes can i learn anything out of this set that I can build on in the pursuit of that micro, micro, micro improvement, but that at the same time at, our, at, at your level, at my level, it makes the world's difference. Yep. You know, like if you're, like I'll give you my example. My goal this year is to get to three more often at 41. And I don't have to tell you like the difference between two and three, you know? Nope. It's like finals versus yeah, watch from the uh-huh. bank, you know, like... Well, it's... I don't know if you had the same conversation, but when you say that, it reminds us, uh, reminds me of our friend Dane Meckler. I, I saw him last year. He'd moved to Charlotte. I went down to ski tournament at Little Mountain and uh, was just catching up with him. Hadn't seen him for a long time and asking him how he'd been doing skiing down there. And, you know, he said he'd been getting into the groove and he said his one goal for the year was to turn two. He's like, if you look at my scores over the last four or five years, like I've lot two, 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 two. He's like, I'm really good at getting two, but just what you said, that gets you really close, aggravatingly close, but not quite in the finals or on the podium or getting a check. And so he's like, I've just been doing anything I can to turn two and go to three. If I'm in bad shape, I don't care. I'm just going to try, you know, a crazy turn. I'm just going to hold on to stuff that I wouldn't usually hold on to. Get two, three. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting, you know, thought. Yeah. And it's a good self-awareness. Because like, when I thought about it, I was like, yeah, I've seen that. You do, you're like really consistent at 39, but lots of twos and lots of close but no cigar. And then I'll be darned, that day, I think it was that day, if it was not the next day, he goes out there and gets off of two really well. And he's left, he turns three, he gets gets his first ever four, you know. And I was like, dang, I, you know, he's on to something. And then look. You know, the we season talk, he had. Look at the season he had. We were talking about it last night. You, yep. know, you were saying it. it went to three events uh, and the world's top seed in the final, fourth place. 
California Pro Am fourth. fourth place and Malibu Open third, third. place. Like yeah, pretty and and he went to four again at Malibu Open. I mean, when he needed to when, to yeah. get into the final. Yeah, actually, that that put me out of the final. I was I was in until that moment. Dang, uh, so thanks, Dane. You prick. <laughs> <laughs> Love no, you, buddy. But. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, like three tournaments. He's the first out of the Masters. It's insane. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Uh. That's my spot too. Usually, Dane, I'm usually first out of the Masters. <laughs> what What are you trying to do here, man? <laughs> Close but not cigar, man. But. uh yeah, so I feel like we skipped a big mm. moment. We're jumping around. Yeah, we're no, jumping, but this is around. how the Wireski podcast works. No notes. You, you see me with any sort of preparation? No, yeah, we exactly. just kind of rolled out of bed. I got a couple of coaching sets in. Got the my voice good and worn out, but yeah, okay. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll 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 find some structure. Um, no. So, you, you I remember you saying you had this whole experience of like skiing was good and fun, but it was part of other things, and then. You presumably went to college, and you, know, you went to Clemson. Yeah. And then, what? How was your college experience, and what happened afterwards? Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, my reason for going to Clemson really was the ski team. A few ah, okay. other friends uh, had come out of Virginia or the Eastern Region. Uh, I think Clemson does pretty well there, like Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York. Like it's a, it's drivable. Um, and it kind of fits, at least for me, and, and a lot of the, you know, younger kids I've seen go there since me. Um, it's it's kind of the right vibe of a ski school in the sense that if you're not going to make the team at ULL or ULM, and you're not like a, a rock star skier, yeah. or, or even uh, like Florida Southern or, or Alabama, like those programs have really come on strong. Um, you know. If you're just a pretty good tournament skier, you're going to make the team. You're going to be, uh, you're going to contribute, and it's a it's a beautiful campus. It's a nice university. It's drivable from the northeast. Like for me, it was it was a really um, good distance from home. You know, I could drive home for the holidays, like seven or eight hours, whatever it yeah. was. Be with my family at Thanksgiving or Christmas, like winter break, summer break. Um, but also, then I was also off on my own and able to be independent and feel like I was in a completely different bubble when I was at school. But anyway, yeah, the real reason I wanted to go there was the only school that I applied to that really had a, a water ski program, and it was my first choice. I wanted to go somewhere warmer yeah, uh, with a, maybe a little longer season, and I had, I, I didn't really have a conception of what the collegiate water ski experience was like, but I had been told good things. Right. Um, so I didn't really know what I was walking into, but... Um, but I, I'd heard good things, so I, I'm very, very thankful that I did go there. So, but I was always told up to that point, you know, look, you have you have a lot of talents. You do well in school, you know. At least Clemson is a you know, it's a great you, institution. You, you, you can get a good you can get a good education there. Like it's nice that you can ski, but you know, there's really no such thing as pro skiing. So putting your your eggs in that basket and, and trying to pursue that doesn't make any sense because it was like a fanciful dream. I guess growing up, just looking in, at the magazine and being like, wow, you know, I'd like to be like Andy Mapple or, or Wade Cox or any of these guys, you right. know, Chris LaPointe. Um, and so um, anyway, I, I kind of kept water skiing in the same compartment that it always had been. It was just a seasonal fun thing that I love to do. And... Um, you know, I didn't go to college like really trying to train, improve. Like I was, uh, I was the top skier on the ski team most of the time there, and and we were like a you know get into D one, go to the nationals, but not competitive for a top, certainly not oh. top four. Like I think Clemson's like a kind of solid seventh place sort of finisher at D one, which which is good. You know, we we field a full guys team, girls team. Um, it kind of goes up and down with, you know, which one's stronger and which events are stronger. Usually slalom team is pretty good. Yeah. Um, but it, so, and, and we don't have any, fa at Clemson, there are no real faculty advisors. So it's a completely student run team yep. and club. It was self-funded. Um, and so, and I, um, uh, I was pretty broke mostly through college. Like many people are, I would work on all the breaks, you know, summer break uh, winter break spring break to try to like and I, I had saved money going in but like I didn't feel like I had a lot of 
gas money, especially after traveling to tournaments on the weekend. So, uh, and, and, and Clemson skis on a big public lake, which is very right. much what I was familiar with. Um, you know, conditions not always perfect. So, you know, I'd kind of get out there and have some fun when time allowed. Um, but I wasn't like always trying to, I didn't line up my schedule in any consistent way where it's like, hey, me and a couple of buddies are always going on Tuesday and Thursday to ski. Right. You know, I just kind of like randomly hit up somebody or they would hit me up like, oh, yeah, okay, I can ski today. I just wasn't like focused on it. I was told to kind of focus on schoolwork. So I, I after my first semester, uh, <laughs> after that one, I got pretty focused on schoolwork. Yep. And, um, <clears throat> and once I kind of checked that box, I felt like the rest of what was going on around me was primarily a lot of partying, which uh, I've always had a bit of a competitive nature. So I thought, what I ought to do is, is if this is what's happening most of the time, I should excel at it and, and try to be the best that I can be. Right. And so I devoted maybe a little more of my time and resources to that than what would be healthy. Right. Um, so skiing was really just kill like a, you know, a side project. I had the same HO Monza all like from going into college and even the year afterwards, like that ski was so flexed out. I remember I, I put my bindings on it like a year or two after I had moved off of it onto the A1. I just put my boots back on. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I realized, like, I was skiing with a crummy ski, not really practicing a lot. And actually, that at those years, in the summertime, I really wasn't skiing much uh, at all because our, our setup at Lake Gaston was with a public lake where I grew up skiing. It was just difficult. The 81 Mastercraft was, like, it was still running fine, but, you know... I, and, and we didn't know much still, like, about the finer points of driving, you know, and, ca and kind of counter-steering. And we didn't have pre-gates. We had to wait six minutes in between passes because uh, we had seawall on both sides. So, yeah. you know, and, and we're fighting other jet skis and whatever. So, like, I got very discouraged. I felt like at that time I was kind of like a running 35 off kind of guy. Okay. Get, like, two or three at 38. And um, I just didn't feel like I was even able to... I go ski at a tournament with kind of good driver, good boat, calm water, and like that's kind of what I would do. Like a two at thirty eight was kind yeah. of a normal. Um, uh, maybe I would go to a ski school, get some helpful driving, and kind of get the deep thirty eight going. Right. Um, but uh, so that's kind of where I was, and like we, I go ski at home though, and like I just felt like thirty two off was like this massive challenge. So I got really frustrated with it. And I was like, man, whatever we're doing here, it's just it's not helping me, and I feel like I'm getting worse rather than better. Uh, and I was, um, my grandmother was sick with Alzheimer's, so we were spending a little more time just trying to keep eye on her and manage her situation. And it was just kind of a shifting of priorities. So, you know, it was not, um, that's kind of the level I was even coming out of college, you know, which as you know, is a far cry from anything worthwhile on, you know, yep. the, the pro tour. Like you're far away. There's kids, uh, tons of kids coming out of college now that can run 38, yep. um, you know, and then you and I were close to the same time. You know, I, I feel like I was a very solid step behind the pack of you, just you and Kale and Daniel and Adam and yeah. Ian. Ian, yeah. yeah, all these key people that were our age. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I said before, like moving ahead now, I, I was very lucky because I graduated in 2008. And um, some friends had offered me a job with their company, and many of my friends who graduated at the same time, who had been told their whole life, oh, you know, study hard, go to college, get your degree, and then, like, you're just going to come out and live happily ever after with a great career. Right. That just did not happen. You know, everyone moved back in with their parents and struggled to get a $35,000 job as an administrative assistant because you needed two years of work experience to get that. And everyone was like, what you why know, what is going yeah. on here you know this was a big lie that was handed to me um so i felt lucky i at least had a job lined up i was working i was able to you know so you took the job yeah i took it the year before well yeah i was offered the job i was coaching water skiing after my junior year of college as i was the first year where i began living where i live now um, and giving some lessons to the whitlock family uh, who owns that Pond, um, them and a couple of other families, and one of the other families who's about an hour away, they were the ones that offered me a job working for their business, 
um, the following year. And I said, well, okay, that, that sounds like a pretty good opportunity. Um, could I still coach skiing, you know, for the summer months? Right. Once I get out of school and I graduate, can I coach skiing and, and ski all summer? And then we'll start in the fall. And they said, yeah, yeah that's fine. So I said, okay. Skiers, right? They're skiers. Yeah, yeah. okay, they understood. Yeah, that's the only, you know, that's the way, you know. Yeah. And um, it wasn't a job related to my degree or anything like that. They what was your degree in? Uh, so I, I studied political science and philosophy, major in political science, minor in philosophy. Nice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I loved it. If I if I had – I started out on, like, the pre-med kind of track. Mm-hmm. Um, had I not done that, I would have loved to have done the double major. Uh, or even if I had had the guts to say what I really wanted to do, I probably would have made philosophy the major right out. I was a little bit afraid of, like, the uh, blowback of, like, that's not a valuable enough degree. Yeah. But I love the coursework so much. And I, th- I, I still would like to finish that degree, and I'd like to – someday follow in your footsteps and go for a phd but that's that's a lifetime yeah that's, that's maybe another decade or two from now that's funny like i i wanted to do i wanted to do philosophy too really? and yeah because i was computer science and then i realized that computers i didn't like them as much as i, <laughs> as, I as i thought i did uh-huh. and then i wanted to switch to philosophy mm-hmm. but ul made national news because that year that i decided that i would have loved to switch they canceled the philosophy degree so you oh. couldn't get a bachelor in philosophy at a university, which makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. And then my uh, the director of the computer science program basically helped me to transition to psychology. He said, why don't you try psychology? You took cognitive science. You loved it. And that's really how I got into psychology because philosophy department was shut down. But I was going to do that. There are, there are related. There's a, there's a relationship there. Absolutely. You know, the two are connected. Um you know, and I guess a lot of the more prominent, uh, or as prominent philosophers out there now also have a ba- background in psychology. Yeah, Daniel um, Dennett. Yeah, Dennett. Yeah. Uh, Jordan Peterson's obviously become a big phenomenon yeah. as a psychologist, but he also certainly, you know, he's espousing a lot of viewpoints that you would have to say he's also a philosopher. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, um, that, that, that's maybe another part yeah, of the exactly. conversation too. Uh, so, uh, where were we? Degrees. Degrees, you get a oh, job. Yeah, and so, yeah, and the job wasn't related with the degrees. It was uh, it was actually in the, the septic industry, so, like, you know, where, where the stuff that goes in the toilet ends up, which is, it was, it was good work. You know, I was honest living that, w- that I was making, um, although their business was heavily impacted by the housing bubble bursting because... All right, that was the time. Yeah, yeah. like, the whole thing was, like, housing like was going in boom 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 so that means septic tanks going in boom like one after the other business is growing and then 2008 man the bottom dropped out uh so a lot of the expansion that they were planning that i was supposed to be a part of really got sidetracked and put on hold and so you know here i was working very happy and grateful to be having a job but also like not in a passion field um, you know, I was living independently on my own, just taking care of myself. So that, that was easy and felt good. But like, I, I kind of felt like, like there needs to be something a little bit more, you know, and I was, right. I was still, I was doing probably a lot of bad habits. I was, I was going to the bar two or three nights a week just cause I didn't have a whole lot else going on, you know, drinking, like I'd be bumming cigarettes off of people at the bar. Yep. Uh, and, and just kind of you know, not not taking the best care of myself. I mean, just kind of almost a continuation of college life, but just with, you know, now with a, job. a paycheck and a job instead of books and, and homework and, and papers. And um, so, you know, I kind of have a bit of a memory of being in, in that office uh, somewhere in the this time of year, you know, jam- probably a little earlier, January, February, cold, rainy, yucky day, right. stepping out with my coworkers, bumming a cigarette from them, thinking like what am i doing with myself like is this what's the 10 year picture like here what's where am i going with my life doing this and i started realizing that you know in just a few short months it was going to be summer again you know i was living where i am living now which is on a lake but i was like i'm going to be in this office all day the the family that i'm coaching like they're all going to be out skiing during the day like i'm going to m- miss skiing with them i might i might have a hard time getting actually a pull 
So people are going to be out enjoying the summer days skiing, and I'm going to be stuck in this freaking office, or I'm going to be, you know, arm deep in a septic tank somewhere. Right. I was like, that is a reality that I can't, I can't quite synthesize that. So, um, you know, I started thinking like, well, what am I going to do? You know, I didn't have like a good sideways, like next step, you know, or it wasn't just like, oh, the, the grand profession of pro skiing just awaits you. If only you, you know, try really hard, even if you get your skiing much better and, and, you know, make, get your open rating and, and ski some pro events. Like I was like, well, how am I going to survive doing right. that? You know? Um, so I was really twisted up with a lot of fear of failure and kind of paralyzed with where to go with this situation. But like, I knew that staying there was not a long-term option, you know, and and I'm kind of glad that, that the business thing was kind of going sideways and that it wasn't like making a lot of money and I got addicted to the money making and then started taking on debt, you know, to, to buy cars or or, or whatever, just, just too stuck on the money train. Um, you know, I was I was free enough and young enough to say, okay, I can make a radical change. And if it totally, you know, I'm I'm also very fortunate. I feel like if I landed flat on my face, if I did fail, and if it was super embarrassing that I tried to become a pro skier and just like the skiing really didn't get there, and I I tried to take on more coaching or kind of do a ski school, and it didn't really generate any momentum, and I just fell flat. You know, I I'm a very fortunate person. I have a lot of loving family that would have kind of scraped me up, helped me kind of get back on my feet, guide me into some direction. I mean that, and I also have to give a very specific thank you to, um, you know, the, the Whitlock family who owns the place where I was living, you know, renting and, and skiing. And, um, you know, they really helped create that situation in a very, in a very generous and favorable way to me to, to not have high hurdles to clear, to start gen- getting a little bit of cash flow into the door, and uh, and for what I feel like is the the value to me of of where I live, making it very affordable and and giving me the ability to kind of get my feet planted there in a, in a way that if this was a strictly business proposition, yeah. who knows? It may have it may have never worked. You know, right. like if if I had to pay the full value to at least something like here, what the boarding school is, or what any of these great ski likes lakes or, or like a club is like you know i probably would have been buried you know and, yeah. and I, who knows if i would have climbed out of it or that might have distracted way too much from the pursuit of skiing to to put enough energy into that to do more right so hard to say um i guess you know in the end though uh, enough good fortunes and good twists did come my way um but skiing started to go better as you know I, I started to learn about nutrition for the first time you know yeah. I, obviously i knew that that broccoli was better for you than cheez its yeah. but you know that didn't govern all of my habits and behaviors like when i went to the grocery store i wasn't reading labels i wasn't you yeah, know very aware that looks good yeah yeah you just kind of you know you're out you just graze on on whatever you know i didn't even realize like how much okay i need to be hydrating like constantly pouring some water into this physical system of mine to keep it working right 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 um so I started reading on that and, and taking on a lot of new information and making some lifestyle changes, which all of a sudden like felt a lot different. Like after four years of college and kind of continuing that lifestyle, lots of drinks and things like that, man, all of a sudden I felt more energy and I noticed, you know, sleeping better, sleeping much better. Some, some inches in the middle starting to, to fall away. Right. I was like, okay, this is good. And, and I started, you know, more of a serious exercise program. I, my mind started being open and paying attention to, okay, well, what are other people that are skiers that are doing well? You know, I, I would hear, you know, stories of Will Asher just crushing it in the weight room and be like, oh, apparently I need to like crush get, it in the weight yeah, room. Yeah, I need yeah. to do that or something, you know, and like P90X was getting very popular. So right. I, I bought all of those discs and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is hard, you know? You're, yeah, right, right. But uh, as all these things are, it's ci- <clears throat> cyclical. So I started trying to like build one thing to another and it, that started to come, which of course did help for the skiing, and um, so was that the year, like the year when that January when you said, okay, the ten-year vision is weird. Is that the year where you started making all these changes? Yes. Yep. So exactly, I left that company on the last day of February. That would have been twenty uh, two thousand nine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to work for them in the fall of 08. 
only made it about six months to like February of '09, and um, left the job. Um, started trying to exercise more. I, I that was my first time ever going to Gordon Rathbun's place in, in Acapulco to ski paradise. I I kind of basically begged him for right. a, a, a guest coaching opportunity, and he let me come down for a week in March, which was like, you know, I. I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm really doing it. I'm, I'm trying to live this dream. Like, who knows what's gonna happen? I made some really great connections there. Well, I mean, one with him that uh, turned into a, a full season, a full six months of living there. The, the following winter, when I was trying to chase the sun and yeah. run, run more buoys and make up for lost time on the ski, um, and then even some of the guests that I met there, uh, like the the Goldman family from Shortline Lake in California. They've been incredible friends to me since then. They always open their house to me. I always stay with them uh, when we go out to Sacramento for yep. the Cali Pro-Am or maybe get to do a short line tournament, um, and they've just become great friends. Um, so that kind of like, that was a little Kickstarter moment, and then I got to, now that I left the job, it's back to coaching the families that summer who I had done the, the prior couple of summers. Yeah. And... Um, and then I was trying to figure out, okay, what, uh, how am I going to keep this going through the winter? So I, oh, I, I, I got my open rating. Like to me, that was yeah. a huge deal. Like it was still the scorecard thing, and like the rating back in the day was one and a half at thirty nine. One half at thirty nine. Yep. I uh, went up to Twin Lakes in New York for a record tournament because there's not that many in the East, and it was early. It was like mid, mid late June, so I'm just starting to hit my strides and and run some thirty eights, and um, so funny story there. Uh, first round, all jacked up. I'm using clinchers at this time. Yep. Got my new uh, A1 kind of dialed in. Um, so I go up there, 30, 28, 32, 35. Coming back at 38, I think I turned four ball. Like I'm in the pass. I'm like, oh my gosh, Like here we go. Um, grab the middle of the handle, which is something I do a lot. And yep. with the clinchers and with the kind of the poor technique I had at the time, just really loading up hard off the buoy, like I, I fell, I fell, but like I felt something really strange first. Like the handle felt like it bent. So I waved to the judge in the tower and said, "Hey, um, can you radio the boat? I think that the handle broke, and it had just so happened uh, I hadn't skied a record tournament in a long time. My handle had measured long, so I used I used a club handle. Ah, okay. So they provided the handle, so it did indeed break, and then uh, I got a re-ride. Yeah, because it was, it, it was their, Claudia, yeah, like tournament equipment. So they provided me with another handle and brought me back to the other end of the lake, and we came in 38 again. This time, big two ball, same thing. Handle folds right in half. No it, shit. Yeah, and I, I was like, uh, I waved to the judge, and I was like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm not doing this on purpose. I swear this doesn't happen at home or anything, but, like, radio the boat, that handle broke again. And... uh you know, so they get a different handle, pick me up. Actually, no, they they got me on the boat because they didn't have a handle. They brought me back to the dock. They pulled another split, like they pulled men's one or something, yep. or men's two or something, some, some other split. And then uh, they let me start my round over because they had, it had been 10 minutes. Yep. And so, uh, you know, I think I started maybe at 32. Anyway, got to 38, either two or four ball, big turn again felt the handle breaking so i kind of stood up and i just i could hold the handle up to the boat judge i'm skiing back in i was holding the rope and the handles folded straight in half again they were like oh my gosh what is this guy Kid. doing <laughs> and um by that time they had fitted some rope into my handle went back to the dock got mine ran 38 didn't break the handle um and then i was like okay here we go one and a half like this is it and then uh, fell at one ball. Of no. Course. Yeah. Down at one. Uh, but it was three round tournament. The next round, I think I got got the full two. Nice. You know, handle held up. So like, yeah, oh yeah. It was like a, a very memorable day, especially with the handle situation happening. Um, you know, I still get jokes from from the crew up there about that one. But um, so yeah, that and then I felt like wow, like I'm in my mind, like that was a big deal. I, I just I wasn't really like tuned in enough i was still kind of like in my outsider bubble to not understand that two at 39 like occasionally banging through a 38 and getting you know two or maybe three at 39 gets yeah. you nothing i mean that's like 
that's the epitome of like I'm gonna pay my entry fee to the winner, and yeah. here you go. Um, but but it's a start. I, I, yeah, I mean, I you need, I you need the card. You right. need the card to get there. Well, look, I had one other little turn that summer that was like uh, that kind of fired me up and made me a, a, a believe in myself a little bit at the U.S. Nationals. I I got onto the the podium in fifth place. You know, fifth place podium. Open. In open. Oh wow! I, that was my first ever open event. It was Rossi, Parrish, Marcus, JT, and me in fifth. Dude, yeah. what a podium! It was yeah yeah. So I mean, all I was starstruck. You know, like this is my first time being around. I remember the first time I ever spoke to Rossi was at that starting dock, and I I, I walked up to him. And I was like, Chris Rossi. Uh, hi, I'm like I'm Corey. I was Corey Humberg then. I introduced myself and I said, um, you know, I. I it's a real honor to be sharing the starting dock with you, you know, and he was just super cool. He's like, yeah, dude, it's a real honor to be sharing the starting dock with you. Like, I hope you have a great run and stuff. And, uh, obviously there's awesome. a number of skiers between us. And I guess I was coming back to the dock to pick up my handle. I ran, I ran one and a half. No, I ran two at 39. Dude, that's it, good. Yeah. For me, it was like to run 38 at the nationals in that situation. Yeah, big was, tournament pressure, one run. You just become open, first open tournament. Like that's that, good. That was probably for me like a, like a flow state type of moment. Like that was, um, at the time, that was the best, that was the best that I had to, to offer. And it kind of all came through. Like I just, I had that full clarity, like in the moment experience. Yeah. And then, the, yeah, walking back to the dock, Rossi was like, dude, that was sick. Like, you killed it. And I was just like, oh, man, like, this feels this feels amazing. Yeah. Um, then I went to the California Pro-Am at the end of the season and had a more deflating experience because, like, nerves got the better of me. And we'll get to that because I think uh, this concludes our first part. Yeah. And then uh, in the second part, now I want to hear the journey from, you know, getting your card and knowing that you can now access this world mm -hmm. to actually going through this world. So in the second part, we're going to cover that. Sounds good? Sounds good. Thank you.